0: It was this thing where I remembered, like, oh, right, because my dad did that too. Like, my dad also encouraged me to be myself.
1: I'm Matthew Philp.
0: I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hozier.
1: And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique.
0: We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff.
1: In 2003, writer Laura Carney, then 25, lost her beloved father Mick when he was killed instantly in a car accident caused by a distracted teenage driver. The driver and her companions escaped physically unscathed. Thirteen years later, Laura's brother found a handwritten list among some old papers of Mick's entitled, Things I Would Like To Do In My Lifetime, that Mick had written at age 29. Among the 60 items, alongside tender goals like give my children the most love, the best education, and the best example I can give, were more eccentric tasks like correspond with the Pope and sell millions of dollars worth of merchandise. When Laura discovered the first item on the list was, I would like to live a long, healthy life, at least to the year 2020, she knew what she had to do. Before his death, Mick had checked off five of them, and tried and failed at one, so Laura vowed to finish the remaining 54. As of this recording, she's already completed 39, and is giving herself another year for the remaining 15. On this episode, Laura speaks with Erin about the exquisite pain of a daughter's loss while just on the cusp of her own adult accomplishments, the lasting impact of divorce on a child, and some of the more surprising lessons she's learned as Mick lives on through his daughter in the dreams they now share.
0: I was struck by, when we did the pre-interview, how many things we have in common just on the superficial dead dad's club level. <laughs> yeah. You were 25 when your dad died, and he was 54, mm-hmm. and he died really suddenly, and my dad died suddenly when I was 26, and he was 54, and then you moved to New York, and you ended up working for magazines, right, in, mm-hmm. or in publishing, Yep. so you knew you wanted to be a writer, and your dad had wanted to be a writer, mm-hmm. same. Did your dad work in advertising? Advertising sales. Yeah, he was he was a salesman for a living. Yeah. Your dad's name was Mick. And my dad had a trusted business partner that was Mick. And I just love it. (laughs) Hey, you know, maybe they're, uh, they're doing an interview on the other side together right now. Right? It's just interesting how talking about your dad through the project and me also writing a book about my dad, it's interesting how your subject finds you Mm -hmm. as a writer. Did you ever expect to write a book? Not really. I think I wanted to write something about my experience with depression. And I had stayed in a hospital for a week after college. And there were elements of that experience that after years of having gotten myself out of it and swearing off therapists entirely for better or for worse, I kind of discovered that maybe you weren't the best for me. And I think I had this desire to have a voice about that. So I think I did want to write a book in general. And maybe I just had this sort of faded feeling that that was part of my path, that I was going to do that because I did write. That was one of the weird things that happened, the synchronicity where I wrote this declaration to myself when I was 26 of, I will be a voice for young women. (laughs) I will work for a women's magazine. And I think that was in my mind. And then after I started my project with my dad's bucket list, I discovered a very, very similar proclamation to self that he wrote around the same age. Because your dad was, what, 29, right? When he wrote the list? Yeah. And also when he he self-published his book at the same age. And I was born. What a creative year. 78 was a good year for him. When you think about it, my literal birth was also very wrapped up in some creative births for him. Tell me a little bit about your dad and just like growing up. Where did you all live? I grew up in a small suburb of Wilmington, Delaware, which you can't get much smaller than that, except maybe Rhode Island. And my husband, his first experiences of it, he kind of described it as Pleasantville, that movie. Everybody's just so nice and everybody knows everybody else, almost to like a weird extent. You know, not shocking that Joe Biden is from there. And I always think of my dad as a big fish in a small pond. He went to Joe Biden's high school, actually. He was sort of a star athlete and captain of the basketball team, but also a star in academics. And his father, I think he was pretty strict with his sons with wanting them to all be very successful because he himself didn't go to college. He was a police officer. Actually, I think he knew Joe Biden. My cousin told me recently they would see him at football games and he'd be like, yeah, you want to be like Joe. <laughs> because they actually like knew Joe on a first name basis or something. But he was very attracted to the idea of worldly success, in other words. And I think that in a way made my dad rebel because my dad was the only one of his brothers who was actually very creative and more artistically minded. You know, he was in kind of a folk singing duo in high school and college. And he also was just really funny. He was an entertainer. It's funny, I'm thinking of this right now, because I know your connection with your dad and the Beatles, they did this performance once in a, I think it was either a retirement home or a convent. And (laughs) he sang Norwegian Wood, because he just thought it was like, so controversial. (laughs) was like a hilarious choice so I mean that story in itself just really conveys pretty well who he was because he just had such an appreciation for the absurdity of social institutions but you know at the same time while he was very much an activist and a free thinker he also was very spiritual had kind of a very faith-driven life and I think he was one of those people where they're kind of an introvert In reality, and they have a great deal of depth and they're very intellectual, but at the same time, they love being around people. So if you met him for the first time, you might not have known that about him because he was also very much a charming people person. It was just like a facet of who he was same oh my god your dad was like that too totally just like <laughs> really seemed like an extrovert but i think also was able to maintain these really intimate relationships with his own friends other men i think in particular and i i always thought that was really interesting cuz it was like a lot of his life seemed like a lot of bullshit but then <laughs> uh, behind the scenes there was a lot more going on so did that rub off on you? Like, were you always aware of him when you were a child as being spiritual and really knowing himself? No, because it's like, if that's all you know, you just think that's how everybody's dad is. That's you true. Know? I mean, that's something I've really come to appreciate how unique he was later in life. But It was just sort of how he was. You know, you normally would think of a father like that as someone who was so distracted by being an entertainer, being the life of the party. He also was very invested in his own creative pursuits. He was a businessman, so he always had these like new ideas that would just consume him all the time. And then it wouldn't work out, and then he was like on to the next great idea. So if you hear about someone like that, you would think like, Oh, you know, that guy's really probably a neglectful dad. But He wasn't that way he was very intentional and very much like an educator i mean my mom was a teacher that was her profession and also a guidance counselor but i think my dad was a very natural coach and educator and also because he was a divorced dad it was like when we were with him we were really just getting a lot of his focus and his attention you have one brother i have one younger brother and i also have three stepbrothers my mom remarried when I was 13 and my parents split up when I was 6. So that's hard. I have acceptance with it now. At the time it was it was more confusing and very alienating for me with other kids because I'm of the generation where that was only just starting to happen where people's parents were divorced half the time. You know, Right. I actually would have to go meet with the guidance counselor in fifth grade, who, you know, like I said, Delaware is a very small place. So she just also happened to be my aunt. Yeah. <laughs> like, no conflict of interest there. But um, she would have these group meetings of the divorced kids, you know, and mm-hmm. we would watch these videos of these parents just screaming at each other. And everyone would be talking about, oh yeah, that's just what it's like. And I feel like that's not what it's like. <laughs> that's not what happened with my parents at all. Were they still friends? Yes. they. Well, I think they were still in love with each other. Wow. He would still spend the night on Christmas Eve. You know, granted, he was on the couch. They had firm boundaries. But uh, he would say, well, I'm going to see you every Wednesday and Sunday. You know, I don't want to be a weekend's dad. Like He wanted to be very clear that he was still very much a presence in our lives. Yeah, they got along just fine. And they were both very sad, really. Were you anxious as a kid or did the depression kind of take over as an adolescent? I didn't really start experiencing depression as in a can't get out of bed, feel terrible about myself, helpless, worthless kind of feeling. I didn't really start experiencing that until I was 13. Mm -hmm. But I was one of those kids who would be like, oh, I have a stomach ache. I can't go to school today. And I I did that a lot. Like I did surprisingly well based on how often I was doing things like that. But I think part of that was just I was extremely sensitive mm-hmm. and I was absorbing a lot. I just was so attuned to always to what everybody was doing around me. And honestly, I think sometimes I just needed a break. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't oblivious to anything in my life. I think it came out as anxiety- In the sense that my mom would really spend a long time tucking me in at night because I just would have so much I needed to talk about, like before I felt safe enough to go to sleep. And it was like, well, this happened to this person today. And she was a guidance counselor. So she was like super equipped. My parents were almost idyllic in the way they chose to parent us, but they were also human. Yeah, of course. And so your mom remarried and then you had a blended step family. Yeah which my friends loved that because my stepbrothers were 13 and they were twins. Are they identical? Yeah. So you had equal time with your dad or as much as you guys could see each other, but he never remarried. No, he didn't. He always had girlfriends and he would always say these things like, I'm just not the marrying type, which again is forming my ideas about men very early. (laughs) Right. What was it like to be depressed around him? I mean, were you getting help since your mom was a guidance counselor early on? Yeah. Well, my mom married a guidance counselor too. Oh my gosh. So I had a great in-house system. That's a very interesting question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that because my mother has depression. My dad was never diagnosed with depression, but he was told by a doctor once that he likely had it. I mean, I saw him behave in ways that seemed depressed. And I also saw him behave in ways that seemed quite grandiose. So perhaps mm-hmm. he was bipolar. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he was, but his behavior sometimes seemed that way. I think it made him sad because he saw it in himself he saw what was happening to me also in him and there was almost this level of shame about My parents' marriage, and I don't think it was just like why they got divorced. I think it was also about his own life. I think it was also because he just was one of those people who had so much potential and so much talent and intelligence. And so often, so many things he tried to do didn't quite get off the ground. And I always just had this sense that he was somewhat unfulfilled and didn't have this feeling that he himself was a success. And he was just continuing to try all the time. And also, of course, that came out in a financial way. And to see that compared to my mom and my stepdad made pretty good salaries. They both had masters and the number of years they'd been guidance counselors. So they had a pretty stable financial situation. We were kind of like upper middle class, I think. Yeah. So it often felt to me like... My dad did what he could with telling me personally how he felt about things, but there wasn't a whole lot of him coming in and defending me. For example, if I was disagreeing with my stepdad, which happened a lot, even though I would ask him to, he would just say, it's not my place. And I do think that affected me to some degree because I really did want him to sometimes, particularly because so much of... My inner makeup is like him. You said something interesting when we were talking about how daughters sometimes relate in a particular way when parents divorce. I think you'd said something like you, you relate with the father a little more. I mean, I think there's a stage in life where uh, daughters do that anyway. I think it's probably around the age that my parents split up. Like around age six is when you're sort of connecting to your father more than your mother. Say more about that because... I don't think a lot of people make that connection necessarily, but I certainly preferred my father at certain stages of my life, even as I was angry at my mother for putting up with his bullshit, if that makes sense. Like I somehow sided with him more. I think it's Freudian or young, maybe probably Freud though, that your first formative years of life, you're very connected to your mother and she is just your whole world. And for little girls... Then they go through a stage where they have to be connected to their fathers. Although I think the ages are probably similar for little boys too. And then you have like the Oedipal complex for little boys where the desire to get rid of the fathers, you can have the mother all to yourself. And then it would be like the Electra complex for little girls. In a way, I guess my time with my father was what it was and maybe there were certain things that could have been healthier. I, I always got this feeling with him, even from the very early days of seeing him twice a week, as opposed to being at home with him, that I wasn't getting the full picture of who he was, like on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Like I wasn't ever feeling like, oh, my dad's boring. you know, <laughs> like, which, which also didn't help with the fact that he also was, in general, not a boring person. <laughs> and he didn't get the boring part of me either. He didn't get the part of me that was misbehaving as a normal kid would be, although I didn't do a whole lot of that because I was such a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe there were parts of myself in my development that I wasn't quite finding a comfort level with in a way that would have been healthy for me because I wasn't getting very many opportunities to test them with him. Mm -hmm. Like I, I could very easily just not tell him about a bad grade and get away with it. Yeah, he wasn't as strict. No, he just wouldn't find out unless he asked my mom. The way I experienced him at that young age certainly shaped who I am as a person in some positive ways and my choices in life because I really think the reason I chose journalism as a profession comes from the fact that I would just store up almost photographically these memories of my week and then when I would go to see him I would just be telling him all of it you know which which he loved because he was a storyteller himself so it was like he was encouraging me to be the storyteller sometimes he would tease me and be like oh, okay Lucy like You know, like Lucy from Charlie Brown, like to talk a lot. So, um, you know, it could be a bit much, but it was just because I would just felt like I had to create this balance of, he knows everything that's going on. And I wanted it to be accurate. But accurate with me also seeming heroic. Yeah. It sounds like you had kind of a special bond. Did you bond over like sports? I think more than anything, I mean, us both being writers, you know, my, my mom told me once that she felt like our minds were the same, but my temperament was more like hers. Just the sense that she felt that my dad was a truth seeker. And that I also was a truth seeker, but yeah, totally we bonded over sports. I mean, he always just kind of treated me like I was no different from a boy in that sense. And I mean, he even would just have a sense of humor about it. Like we would be playing baseball and he'd be like, oh, you throw like a girl just to like, you know, lighten that if anyone else was saying that to me <laughs> you know, or like, like, that's so stupid. Like, don't even listen to that if that happens. Yeah, he, he really treated me like I just could have been a champion athlete if I chose to be, even though I was quite bookish. And it was always funny, the result of that, because I would be in school gym class and I was often the last or second to last person chosen for almost any team sport because I was this very shy quiet kid so it's like oh well she's not going to be any good and then I would like blow people away (laughs) like once I was out there (laughs) because they had no idea what were your sports Um, I played tennis, basketball, basketball was kind of amazing, because I was a forward and I played on an all boys team. Uh The other thing that probably helped is, like I said, everybody knew everybody else. So like, my dad knew the coach, like he had gone to high school with the coach, and my cousin was on the team. So whenever, you know, we would have practice and without fail, one of the boys on my team would be like, Oh, shirts versus skins, Lars team is skins. My dad, I remember being like just extremely proud though that I was on that team because what would happen almost every game is. So you start at the like the center of the court and you choose who your man's going to be like who you're playing against and I was always the first person chosen because every single person on the other team would be like oh I can easily be her and then my dad had trained me in this very like tight man on man defense where you could never ever get the ball I think he knew no one was going to ever pass me the ball <laughs> so like this was my only chance so basically whoever had chosen me was never going to get the ball for the entire game and would just get gradually more and more pissed off my dad would be on the sidelines, just kind of like laughing about it. So I really just still got to have this feeling of being this champion athlete, like within the parameters of what society allowed for me. I was 12. I mean, I remember very well noticing that I needed to start shaving my legs, but not being quite prepared to make that leap yet. So I would have to wear these black sweatpants because, you know, we didn't really wear leggings yet in that era So I would be so hot when I would play the games, but it's like, well, it's either hot or like look like a werewolf. Hot or hairy. I'm not going to choose hairy. So, but that went on through high school? Oh, I think I only probably did that for one season, but I did play on the girls team in high school. So you ended up in the hospital because you've been put on too many meds. Yes. Do you think that that was just terrible treatment? I think it was that combined with the fact that probably what was driving my depression was a constant force in my life. Like it was still happening, whatever externally and also internally was making me respond in the way that I was. I think that it's probably not a coincidence. I feel like this is going to sound horrible, but I feel like it's probably not a coincidence that after my father died and I was in a pretty stable, solid relationship and was also pursuing my own dreams in my adult life that my depression never, ever got bad enough again, that I required anything more than like a small dose of antidepressant. I believe it's genetically implicated that you are more likely to have this happen. But I also think there's a lot of lifestyle things that come into play. Yeah. And I also think we have patterns. I think we have psychological patterns of the way we think about things that maybe wasn't being dealt with as much as it could have been because, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, when I was getting treatment, it was very new and trendy at that time to medicate.
1: Hi there. This is Matthew Philp. I just wanted to take you aside for a moment to say make sure that you listen to next week's episode in which we'll be talking dad-themed Academy Award-nominated films with Vanity Fair's chief critic Richard Lawson. And this year, there are plenty. Also, you can access more dad content like our Bad Dads anthology by becoming a Tell Me About Your Father subscriber for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. To recap, next week we'll talk dads in this year's Oscar-nominated films with Vanity Fair's Richard Lawson, and become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. Okay, good. Done. Now back to our conversation with Laura Carney.
0: I was just such a people-pleasing kid. I don't know if it came from the situation with my dad, with the way that I experienced him or... And even like sometimes with my mom, because in a way, I had two families. So I had my family with my dad and my brother and also my family with my mom and my brother. So was I really being my full self with her? I don't know. I got to a point, I think, in high school where I just didn't have a strong sense of self yeah, at all. And I think some of that came from my dad, too, as far as me absorbing how he was, because you know, he really just had like two different sides to him. And I think I always kind of knew something was missing with how he was. And I think unconsciously just adopted that. So by the time I was just getting all of these doctors and medications, I just was totally under this belief that I had a disease and there was something defective about me. But again, in my regular everyday life, no one would have recognized or known that was going on because I was really good at hiding things. When the hospital happened, because I had just let this doctor, doctor put me on like 13 different medicines in one year and then i finally stopped seeing him ironically enough because i wasn't taking ambien at night which <laughs> really bothered him for some reason <laughs> wow but yeah it was kind of uh, bizarre he said i was a non compliant patient which is insane with 13 meds how is that non compliant right and i just kept getting these very weird side effects from them too like he put me on one that maybe gained like 20 pounds in a month and Then he put me on three of them that made me break out in like three different ways. And it just was like my body was turning against me basically. (laughs) And by the time I was in the hospital, it was, you know, I'm not saying this because I'm knocking someone who genuinely needs a hospital. I'm just saying that in my particular case, I needed it because I needed to get off a lot of medications I didn't actually require you know not because i was actually you know like a danger to myself in any way yeah and, and also my new doctor who was much better was like oh as an added bonus you'll finally get a decent diagnosis so they took me off of almost everything and and i think for the first time i got this view of okay here's what it is to actually be sick yeah and and i'm not like i'm okay and and I became almost more resilient than I'd ever been in my life overnight being in that place, even though I was there for six days. But it really was the first time I, I saw myself and said, you know, there's no covering this up. And I, I mean, I remember my boyfriend at the time broke up with me when I got out because he's like, oh, you were in a hospital, you know, in Delaware. That was like, whoa, like, that's not cool. Uh, So that definitely helped me form that choice of let's get out of here. And I had about a year where I was just dating all these different guys online. Yeah, sure. Just from like all over the country. Um, One of them was a Mormon in Utah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I went out to Vegas to meet him. One of them was in Syracuse. It was really just crazy, reckless behavior. But I think I just was like, who the fuck cares anymore? (laughs) And I had this idea, I think, like, oh, I'll just, you know, glom on to that guy's life and meet his friends in and then instant social group. By the time I met my husband, that kind of wasn't going to work because he lived in Seattle. For some reason, that was too far away for me. And I had already gotten an internship in New York, finally. Like, I spent a year after college just trying to apply for things. And I was like, whatever, I can't get a job. I'll just settle for this, like, $10 a day magazine internship. So I was like, I'm going to do it. And he a hundred percent supported my doing that because my husband's a very adventurous person himself. He had moved to Seattle from Pennsylvania, very small town too. And he really became my support system as I made that move that summer, even though he was across the country. I'm not like a psychic or something, but I was starting to develop some intuition that summer mm-hmm. too. And I remember having a feeling on 9-11. I'm sure lots of people say that, but I felt that like the morning that 9-11 happened. And then that summer, I remember at one point telling Steven that I feel like something really terrible is going to happen. Like this feels like my 9-11 feeling. And I was like, I don't know if it's going to ex- affect the whole world or just me and my family. And then a month later, my dad died. And we went down, you know, it was one of those typical like meet the family situations and he met my mom and my brother and we just went out to lunch with my dad. And it's kind of ironic looking back on it because Stephen remembers his first conversation with my dad being over the phone while he was driving, like while, while Stephen was driving. Wow. I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people did that then and didn't really think twice about it. Just picking up and answering the phone while you were driving nobody would have even thought you know and it's ironic because someone else doing that ended up killing my dad like a week later but he got to meet your husband to be five days before he died yeah we went out to lunch with him and he was in a weird transition in his life actually because he had just broken up with his girlfriend, and he seemed kind of stressed out, almost a little bit of that manic energy that I had seen in him before. Mm-hmm. He was writing a book about, actually, it was this amazing idea for a book in retrospect about quarterbacks from Pittsburgh. You know, he was a huge sports statistics. He was obsessed with that stuff. And he had discovered, like, all of the best NFL quarterbacks came from Pittsburgh. So he was going to the library and, like, working on this book. And I didn't really know where he was living. He had just moved into this new apartment, and he's like, well, don't tell anybody like where I'm living right now. And the whole lunch was him very much into this mode where he just was dominating the conversation and I resented it whenever that happened. And especially on that particular day, because I just wanted to talk about what was happening in my life, and what was happening with this new guy I was in love with that I was introducing him to, you would think he would be like, so tell me your story and I don't recall a whole lot of that happening. When we left, I left to go use the bathroom and I was walking out and I could hear my dad talking to Steven and saying like, oh, well, you seem like a nice young man. And that was amazing to me because he had never said that about any guy. He just always hated every guy I ever dated, honestly, for good reason. But <laughs> it was like such a win to have that happen. And then he hugged me goodbye in front of the restaurant. And I remember this so clearly. Steven and I drove to Barnes & Noble because that's what we did all the time back then in 2003. And I remember just breaking down in tears because I was so embarrassed. And I actually said to him, when will it ever end? What I meant was my worry about my dad. like My, my desire for him to just be regular, to just <laughs> be like a normal dad because even though My dad was the only person who I think truly understood my move to New York. And he genuinely encouraged it. He's like, this is great. You're going on this adventure. You're finding yourself. You're going to be a writer, et cetera. But at the same time, he was the one I worried about the most leaving behind. So of course, you know, when he died a week later, there were elements of that for me that were like, well, would this have happened if I'd stayed? Which of course is like magical thinking. Yeah, I don't know if you went through that at all. Uh, yeah, I'm still dealing with it all the time. How did you find out? He died because a 16-year-old pulled off of a highway in Pennsylvania because she was lost. And um, I think she had her two younger siblings, one like a teenager and one who was four in the backseat. She was driving like one of those mammoth like SUVs. And she picked up the phone at a red light and then she just stayed on and drove through the next red light and he was turning left. He was like the first car coming out, turning left at the intersection. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there were lots of cars behind him and, you know, already stopped at the red light. So lots of witnesses, that's, that's how I know that that happened. Um, And I, I didn't make much of a connection to it that it was the phone at all, because like I said, it was somewhat accepted behavior at that time. I actually really paid attention to the fact that she was in an SUV because he had like a Mercury Cougar. I feel like that's like emblazoned in my mind because I've read news articles about it. (laughs) And that's a weird thing too, to see that in the paper about someone you love. But I found out because my brother called me um and i was on my way home my first job in new york was at outback steakhouse i was a hostess and i was on my way home from my job and i got a voicemail and i got off the subway and i i that's when he told me and it was like you know jackson heights will always just be Mm. emblazoned in my mind just because it's the scene where that happened and and i always find interesting that when i moved there what i loved about it was how foreign it felt Mm -hmm because I just wanted to be somewhere anonymous, kind of, after my experience in Delaware. But then after, when I was grieving, something about how foreign it felt really helped, because I didn't want to be reminded of what had just happened. It was a nice kind of escape for me. Did you hole up, or did you find that you went out more? It was difficult in a way, because I wanted to do that. And the person in me who had these habits of a depressed person wanted to do that, But then I had this brand new relationship because Stephen had moved across the entire country to be there with me for this romantic time we were (laughs) going to have in New York. And thank God he wasn't just this romantic figure. He also, it turned out, was this extremely tolerant, down-to-earth, patient person who was my soulmate, which, you know, I didn't know right away, but was. And he understood enough about life to understand, you know, even at 29 to know, well, she'll get through this and it will be okay. And I accept this. And that I think was what was so amazing to me. Even the fact that he accepted that I'd been in a hospital was amazing to me because I didn't know any other guys who were like that. It's hard to find. And you guys have stayed together ever since. Yeah, it's 17 years now. I mean, we're not perfect. Nobody is, but. But he helped you through the grieving process. Yeah. Well, he's also very funny. And I think that helped a lot. Yes. You want to have someone funny around when you're dealing with a massive life tragedy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so tell us about the list. I was thinking about this yesterday, and the list, I think it's similar to the decision I made when I was in the hospital, which was that I was never going to abandon myself again, that I I was now really the subject of my life. And also the decision to move to New York, the decision to marry my husband. I feel like there's these certain points in my life where I really was making a choice 100% because I wanted to that had absolutely nothing to do with me trying to prove anything to anyone or what the outside world might think of me. And essentially 13 years after my dad's death, I got married and my brother was about to get married and he discovered when he was moving into a new house, what appeared to be our dad's bucket list. And we were visiting him and he shared it with me. And now I feel like I was kind of primed to find it because I'd had a couple years there where I was like self-actualizing or something, I guess. I stopped drinking completely, like no alcohol at all, because I was finding that I had these terrible hangovers from what antidepressant I was still taking then when that happened, it was like, okay, well, I'm not really going to happy hour anymore. So what am I going to do with my time? So I became a runner. Mm -hmm. And that became like my social life. And then I was running a marathon. And anytime you do something like that, where you're just accomplishing something like just for the sake of it, and you're challenging yourself, I feel like everything else gets healthier, too. So then I was just doing a lot of charity work and kind of just being more myself, just being more vulnerable with people. And I was finally getting to a state where I was ready to write that book. I was ready to just say, look, this is my authentic self. I'm a writer. I'm not just a copy editor at a magazine for seven years. I had very much devoted myself to my work. I think I had this idea a lot of people have of, I'll just try to check off all these boxes of being an adult, and then one day happiness will find me. (laughs) It wasn't working. (laughs) It wasn't just like knocking on my door and showing up. And I was gradually starting to understand, no, actually, you need to make that happen for yourself by pursuing things you are passionate about. So I was just in this mindset where I, that was being revealed to me. And then having the list show up was just like, oh, right, because that's what my dad believed in. And this this is totally representative of him and who he truly was. And if I'm going to write this book, it can't just be, here's this tragic way my dad died, and here's this tragic depression I had, and here's our relationship it's also going to be, well, he was filled with wonder and he was this jack of all trades. And these are the things he valued in life. I I love the idea that it was going to be a quest, you know, because so Mm. much of my experience with him growing up was like an adventure because we would just go hiking in the woods all the time. Mm -hmm. And like my eulogy, actually, that I read at his funeral was about the fact that we would go to the woods and he would say, you know, and this was obviously a kind of pre-PC time period, but he would say that we were like an Indian tribe and, and he was chief big bear and my brother was little bear. And then he would say that I was the navigator. And I was like, no, that's so boring. I don't want that. But I mean, what I realized now is that he was teaching me how to find my way uh. um, through things and, and also not only find my way, but help other people find their way too. And I didn't want to be a navigator and I was terrible at it because I had ADD and I was like, oh, look at the poison ivy, you know? (laughs) So I think also he knew I needed that to help me just like stay on track better in life. So really ever since I moved to New York, that has come to my mind, that, that memory of him doing that and to have the list come and see all these possible adventures I could go on now with my husband too, which was cool because I was feeling particularly plagued at that time with the idea of okay, it seems to me people are now really expecting me to have kids and get a house and choose where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. Like what they call it my forever home that always kind of creeps me out. But um, this is the stage of life I'm in now. And I'm just like, fuck that. Like, what do I care about my stage of life? I'm just finally figuring out who I am. So I mean, in many ways, I almost feel like Making that choice in that moment that, yes, I have to finish this list for him, I have to write about it, almost getting this chance to be 25 all over again, which I think is kind of fascinating because he wrote it when he was 29 Yeah, and then kind of didn't do it. It just didn't do all of it. Is that why you're trying to finish it in four years from the time that you found it? Oh, no, I never thought of that. And, And that's not happening anymore. Now it's going to be five years, I hope. It's interesting though, the thing about it now being five years instead of four, like I should have been done by now. I said that to be four years just because I was like, let's make this even more challenging than it already is to get these 54 list items done. I think I was just viewing it as like, I really want to just package this a little better here. But to have the pandemic happen it sounds crazy but for me one of my thoughts was oh my god i'm not going to get done on time and what is, mm-hmm. like what does that say about me because like the thing i have struggled the most with my entire life and the way my depression has played out mostly has been through lateness like i'm just one of those people who's like always late for everything and always just like fighting myself and feeling shame and like defective because my inner clock is not quite working right but at the same time it's very fitting i think because Every single list item presents me with some kind of lesson that I needed that, you know, it's not just like, oh, here's this great fun thing you're doing. It's like, no, like you're going to pee your pants for eight miles when you try try to run 10 miles straight and you're going to have to deal with that. And it was like, holy shit, all these guys running around me can see urine on my legs right now. And that's just so typical of like (laughs) my dad's humor that he would have really enjoyed that image. And almost every list item is that way. and That's usually his trademark. That's usually how I know that he's there. So there's 60 things. Some of them, I cannot believe you've accomplished at all, much less in four or five years. For instance, there's some simple ones, right? Like grow a watermelon. You would think that's simple, but yeah. (laughs) Tell me about the range of items on there. Grow a watermelon was quite scary for me. Because I'm one of those people who is like, I have no green thumb um, and had become very much a city person. I wasn't home very much. I was always staying late at a magazine to work every night. I just thought I was gonna kill it. I thought there's no way I can create life. So that one was actually kind of hard for me, but I was so damn proud of that watermelon. I mean, it was like, even that is kind of hilarious because it was the size of a golf ball No, (laughs) when it was done. Yeah. Well, because I grew it, I grew it in a little tiny pot on my patio. So you grew a small watermelon. Yes. Also, (laughs) one of them was to meet a living president. Well, no, it didn't say living. It just said, talk with the president. I should mention when I started this project, it was like gangbusters right away. I was working at Good Housekeeping. They Mm -hmm. got word of what I was doing. I had an editor there who liked my writing. So that was how that happened. But, and then she wanted to publish something from my blog about it. And then I'm getting interviews. Like I was on Inside Edition and this guy emailed me and he's like, oh, I hear you want to talk with the president, Jimmy Carter still teaches Sunday school in Plains, Georgia, if that would satisfy it. And ultimately, I decided that did satisfy it just because... He was president in 1978. Exactly, when you were born. Yeah, and of course, like after I met him, I came back home and I scoured my dad's self-published book to see, like, please, please have written about Jimmy Carter. (laughs) And he did. I was like, thank God, like he did meet Jimmy Carter. That was amazing. I mean, I talk about that one a lot because it seems so unbelievable to people that that actually happened. But Jimmy Carter makes himself surprisingly accessible. I mean, he's he's an author as well, and he- Is very much of the people. What did you say to him? I watched every Jimmy Carter documentary I could get my hands on. So we flew down there. I had set something up with a woman who worked at his presidential library, and she gave us a tour, which was really cool. And then that night, we went for a hike on Stone Mountain, which my husband really didn't want to do because we, he was exhausted. But we did it because my parents had actually been there. It was like the only list item that they had come very close contact with because my mom got her master's in Georgia. So my dad had this very like triumphant photo where he was standing on top of Stone Mountain with his fist in the air. So I was just like, I have to do this. Like I have to recreate it. So we did, and it was incredible. And then because we actually did that, we ended up at the hotel that night at exactly the same moment that Jimmy Carter's biographer did. Whoa. I always joke with my husband, like, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have shown up then. And then because I'd watched all these documentaries, I could kind of hold my own with him as we talked about Jimmy Carter for three hours (laughs) in the parking lot. And he just kept saying this weird stuff. Like, well, first of all, he wouldn't tell us his name. He was weirdly cryptic. He's like, oh, don't you think Jimmy Carter knows you're here? Don't you think he has your phone number? You know, if he could sign anything for you, what would it be? And he mentioned meeting other presidents too. So I was like Googling him back in my hotel room and finding out, yeah, okay, here's who this guy is. Like he's a speechwriter for Canadian prime ministers and he has a backyard where presidents come and plant trees. You're kidding. His name's Art Milnes. He's one of those people who has this extraordinary life but seems like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems very unassuming. And I can understand how he's charming all of these presidents because he charmed me. But I think he probably put in a good word with Jimmy Mm -hmm. And then by the time we got to the church, he was there, like he was sitting right in front of us, like next to Jimmy Carter, like he turned around and I made eye contact with him. And after it's over, like they let people walk up and take a picture with him. But the MC in the church is very like strict. And she's like, don't talk to him. Don't bother him. Just take the picture and go. So I was like, oh, no. And then when we were on our way up, like Art showed up and he's like, you know, I just want to tell you, your dad's here today. And it was really, really touching. Mm. And I prepared in my head. And this is what I said to him. I just said, sir, I just want to tell you my dad had on his bucket list that he wanted to meet you. And I'm checking that off for him today. (laughs) And he said, oh, very good. And he shook my hand. He's like, come back down and see us again. And and I was like, oh, yeah, we met Art too. He's really great. And then we got out and saw Art in the parking lot. And he's like, oh, I'm going to set up a dinner for you with him. So you're going to come back down here. My husband refers to it as like the most amazing moment of his life because it was like everyone told me it was so impossible. That was going to be the most impossible or was winning a tennis match. See, the thing is, I didn't view that as hard because I already played tennis. It was beat a number one seed in a tournament. And the thing with that one, I'm always like getting these list items wrong too, some way or another because I have my own limited ideas about what they are. And then as I learn more about the subject matter, I discover, oh no, it's actually this. It's always surprising me what the thing actually is. And usually that involves like, oh, I had no reason to be afraid of this. But with that one, it really was just like, stop being so arrogant because I'd had so much success by the second year that I really was starting to get into this groove of like, oh yeah, I'll just do this one in a day. So because I was already good at tennis, I just thought, well, I'll beat this incredible tennis coach who was my husband's best friend, like one match and I'll be done. And, you know, he really would have had to let me do that if that was going to happen because he just was quite good and I don't know, he says he's not a number one, but I think he has to be somewhere at some point because he's he's that good. And yeah, I just got injured immediately. (laughs) He just like was not easy on me at all. And I reached for a backhand and I wasn't looking. It's just funny that I re- literally was leaping without looking where I was going, which I'm really, really good at. And I pour a tendon in my foot. Oh, dude! Ah. And then I just ignored it. I just ignored it for two months because I'm like, oh, it's fine. It'll, it'll get better on its own. And it didn't. It just gradually got worse and worse that summer. And finally, I found out I had to get surgery for it. But I do think that one taught me the most, probably. I still don't have it checked off, but. The way I'm going to do it now is um, one of the items is have our own tennis court. So my husband gave me a ping pong table for my birthday. And because of the nature of the pandemic, you know, I have to play tennis in my house. My husband's the number one seed in ping pong for sure. So he is my challenge now. He's who I'm going to beat. But the reason I say I learned the most from that list item is because growing up the way that I did, I was a little bit wary about men. As far as like, I will never, ever depend on a man for anything because... You know, I just had given myself this idea that while my dad was great, he wasn't the most dependable person in the world. Mm -hmm. My stepdad actually is quite reliable and dependable, but I didn't have an emotional connection with him at all and also resented him for certain reasons. So I kind of looked at my mom as this like saint of womanhood and super strong, and that's how I wanted to be too. So to be in a situation where I literally couldn't walk and I needed my husband to help me like walk to the bathroom and he's already a great cook. So that helped, but I mean, at one point I just was angry about it and just yelling about it just because I couldn't handle that feeling of vulnerability. But you know, in the end I kind of realized, no, this is part of it. This list isn't just about being strong. It's about being okay with being vulnerable too. I think that's something my dad was never good at. I think he would have been a happier, more fulfilled person if he could have, truly let people in yeah and I think I was probably the only person he really did and to the extent that he did Mm. well that's even more fitting that you're carrying on the legacy what are some of the other like more eccentric or surprising for you like items on the list um hmm. you learn to sail now I'm at a point where if I can find a way where it's funny I'll totally do it (laughs) because I just feel like somehow that works with what my dad intends for me. And that one was a sail by myself. And my dad had a friend who was like a champion sailor. So he knew a lot about sailing. Although, you know, I never once saw him on a sailboat or sailing. But again, financial constraints, right? Like I remember, shortly before he died, actually, like the same year, because he had an enlarged heart and was very nervous about a surgery he had to have. And it was like, I was having these conversations with him, like, well, how do you feel about your life kinds of things? I said, do you have any regrets? He said, I regret I never had enough money to do all the things I wanted to do. (sighs) That was it. That was the only thing. So a lot of times, you know, when I'm doing these things, I'm always just kind of finding the most cost effective way to do it because, you know, I work in publishing. I'm not like a millionaire here. And I try to double them up as much as I can. So one of them was visit San Diego and we were doing that. And I actually had envisioned myself sailing in St. Thomas because that's just like what people do there. But then I found this class in San Diego where you could learn how to sail in this little like bathtub sized boat. They call it a sabot, which is Dutch for little shoe. It's really cute. It's mostly for kids, but adults can do it as well. And that was super fun because it does seem like you're sailing by yourself and you go to this class at the marina there. San Diego, it turns out, is actually a very, very big sailing place. The Navy's there and everything. So we had this awesome instructor. She was just like a total badass and Uh, super strong because you have to have a lot of like physical strength to lift up these sailboats even if they're just like the size of a bathtub sails are so so heavy because we had to learn how to like put them together and you carry all the parts out to the dock and it was basically four other guys and me and we put it together and we learned how to do it and then we would go out into the bay and have to like it's almost like learning how to drive a car you just learn how to maneuver the sheet i i like learning all the lingo I thought that was pretty cool because actually a lot of the English language comes from sailing terms, which I hadn't really realized before. But so uh, I think it was like on the second day, it was really just a weekend course. And the second day, someone asked her after lunch, well, what happens if we capsize? Because like, she had somehow neglected to teach that part. And she's like, no, 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 let's not talk about that. That's bad mojo. He's like, yeah, but don't you think we should know like what to do? So they call it turtling. I don't know why they call it. That. I guess it's because it looks like a turtle when the sailboat's upside down. And she said, okay, well, if that happens, like, just stand there, like, just wait, and I'll come get you, like, just wave your arm in the air. And so, of course, then when we went back out, someone was going to capsize, because we had talked about it. And all of a sudden, it was like, it was way too windy for us to all be out there. Like, she really regretted having us do it. Also, there was like a regatta happening. For your listeners who don't know, that is a boat race. So there's like these giant boats racing each other. But we went out in it and it was like, it was like rapids almost. It was just so wild. And I was almost like standing up like in this little sailboat and like just pulling really tight on on my sail. And I actually like managed somehow to, to do okay, despite all this water was now filling the boat, which, you know, you have a little scoop in the boat so you can get it out. So I was like gradually trying to get this water out and like hoping I wouldn't capsize. And then I saw a guy from the class had capsized. So because it's me, I went over to try to help him. And like, as I went over, he's like, no, it's okay. I'm just going to wait for the instructor. And then some strangers in their boat just like pushed me away from them. And then I capsized. Oh my God. So then what happened? You just had to stay there? Yeah, I was like, okay, it happened. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit here. Let's hope none of these regatta boats come. I'm like, and Although I don't think I even was thinking about that for some reason. It, it's a weird phenomenon that has happened with this project that I've just developed this extreme faith and confidence whenever I'm in dangerous situations just because it's happened enough times that I have survived them. It's like if I survived jumping out of an airplane at like, Twenty thousand feet or whatever it was, like I'll surely I'll survive this, you know. It's like exposure therapy, like you just condition yourself to be comfortable with discomfort. So she came over. She had to get him first, and then she had to come get me. I think she had trouble getting him, so she had to like just leave him there, and then she came and got me. But then I was like, we're like these two women trying to turn this sailboat upright. I was like of no help at all. I was just standing there. She's like, just stand at the back. So she's turning it up, and then she manages to get him and then like she has both the boats up but then like one of them would fall over it was just this comedy of errors like it took like 30 minutes for the three of us to get these boats like both back upright again then we both got back into them and then i was done for the day the guy who was like a navy seal no was like i'm going back out there Like the whole time this was happening, he was like saying to her, I just want you to know I'm really enjoying myself right now because, you know, he's totally versed in danger. So he had no problem with what was happening. But it's interesting because after it was over, I really just felt like, oh, you can't sail by yourself. And even at one point before she came to get me, some stranger came along and was like, hey, let me help you up. And the next day, my mom bought me this little string bracelet from Pura Vita that has a little wave on it. And I still wear that every single day. And I think it's because so much has happened in this pandemic that people get really scared of like, well, what's happening to my life? And will I ever recover? And I always think about that sailing experience. You know, it's okay if something goes wrong because someone's going to show up to help you. Mm. It's ironic that you've done all of these things like jumping out of a plane and sailing by yourself. And even running 10 miles straight is pretty fucking amazing. And your dad died of a super everyday thing, just driving along. And I wonder if as you get older or just in general, like I, for instance, am a super nervous driver and I always have been. And it's like everything bad can happen in a car. And what happened to your dad? It could be so sudden. It might not be anyone's fault or your fault if you're the driver. And you seem very wise and serene. (laughs) Do you ever think about your own mortality? Of course, I could think of almost nothing else after it happened. And I became suddenly a very fearful person. So fearful that I couldn't go back to Delaware. I've never been to his grave. I just didn't want to be around anything that reminded me of what happened. I just developed this feeling of that was my old life. This is my new life. I actually let my driver's license expire in New York City and didn't even bother to renew it for like two years. But yeah, I was like, okay, New York's the place for me for sure because I don't have to drive. Yes. And then I moved to Baltimore for a job. My mom helped me get a, a used car and I had to get my driver's license, which was just like, oh man, what a mess. I had to like prove that I could drive while being totally phobic about driving. So yeah, I was like that for a long time, but I think not even just in the sense of driving, but rather living. That's what I mean is just living. I'm so fearful. I cannot kick that anxiety. What I've come to understand with the list is you're not going to kick it unless you put yourself in a situation where you have to, where you have no choice but to do that. And I was putting myself in life situations where I felt in control all the time because I needed to, because I had this feeling like Man, I really hate it that my dad died not having finished anything. Like, he had all these great ideas, but I don't feel like he was a success. So I became obsessed with this drive to, like, still be financially okay. They can say, oh, she accomplished such great things. I was very aware of my mortality. But I wasn't so much aware of, oh, maybe I should have a good life. You know, it was like, what will they think of me when I'm gone? That's what I was very into. And then also I was very into this whole, like, I need to prove that I can still be normal Despite this extraordinary thing that has happened, you feel very helpless when this superhero to you gets taken down by a teenager yeah. for a very stupid reason. And it just feels super disposable and meaningless in a way. And I had a hard time with that too, with the whole like randomness of it all. So I really just channeled everything in me into this this job in magazines, which is hard in itself. And I'd started just neglecting parts of my life. Like, I don't know, having fun, finding who I really was and what I had to offer the world in a way. And I think I was finally starting to do that though, when I started running and I took an art class again, which was awesome because I'm also a visual artist. I just started reconnecting with things I genuinely love to do. I think that was what it was like, I recognized that I had been saying no for a long time. Oh, better not do that because you could get hurt. I had a really hard time getting close to people after my dad died. It was like my husband, who was my boyfriend back then, was my rock. And that was it. I had two best friends I grew up with, and they were somewhere else. And that was really it. I had, I guess, acquaintances at work and through Steven's friends and people I met at bars, but no one I was close to. It was really just my family and him. But I just was not in touch with myself. I was in touch with fear more than anything. Just like, don't let this happen to you. And certainly don't let anything happen to your loved ones. Mm -hmm. I think really, I probably could have just gone on like that forever. And I think what really pulled it into focus for me was when I was getting married because, man, that's a major life decision. You have to be authentic. If you're going to make that choice for yourself, because it's one of those moments in my life where it's like, okay, I'm doing this just for me. I'm not caring what anyone else thinks. And lots of people tend to have opinions when you're planning a wedding. And I had to learn how to lock those out and really focus on, well, what do we want as a couple? And I think the whole act of him proposing to me had something to do with it as well, because I had always sort of struggled with my sense of worth, even though my father didn't intend that. That was an unfortunate byproduct of his leaving. Mm-hmm. So to have my husband actively choose to say, officially speaking, I want to spend my life with you, somehow it was fixed <laughs> when that happened. I don't, I don't want to say like, oh, because I'm a woman and I need to be adored and I'm an object and I needed to feel like I belong to someone because that's not how I feel in any way. Right. But I think it actually had the opposite effect for me. Steven is just the kind of guy where he really just wants me to be myself. And it just gave me this freedom to do that in a way that I just didn't feel like I was getting from society and the outside world. And I really think finding the list was just the next step. It was this thing where I remembered like, oh, right, because my dad did that too. Like my dad also encouraged me to be myself. And that's what it's all about. Granted, it's been a process. Some of the early list items were like, can I do this? Not even just like, am I able to, but do I have permission to do this? But I think that that's a thing for women in general and i think if you're a woman who's a writer or an artist you know or any kind of musician any kind of art and also you happen to be female if you look at literature you look at mythology what you're often seeing is the hero's journey and a lot of times that hero's journey is what they call the father quest because it's like you're looking to find the father because then if you find the father then you find yourself and that's star wars that's greek mythology all that stuff. But I mean, one of the reasons I love Greek mythology and I love literature and the classics and Native American myths actually too, is because they also represent women. And if you look at something like biblical mythology, you're not going to get that. And the Western world, we've pretty much adopted biblical mythology as our culture, as our myth. And I think that's really the main reason why you don't see a lot of women on father quests. That's kind of new. I would say even in movies. Yeah. So I think that's what I've been on. And that's where I have to really say, do I have permission? Because, uh, you know, I was 38 years old and it's like I'm being told essentially you're a woman and your body is supposed to be sort of dictating what you are now. And I'm like, oh, but no, I'm this. It just seems like you are still connected to your dad every single day. It's like an ongoing conversation You've talked on other podcasts about like signs. That's happened a lot, yeah. I don't talk about his death, I feel like, the way people expect you to talk about deaths. Like, oh, that's so sad. There was a time when, yeah, I was totally like that because if you haven't found a way to accept this tragic thing that's happened in your life, it will forever remain sad to you and it will forever be something you can't put into words, but... I think it's such a gift to me that I have the ability to tell a story and to write something because having this list gave me the impetus to make myself do that and to have faith that, yeah, okay, uh, maybe this will turn out to be good. I'm okay at writing essays. And my dad wanted to write and have a few novels published. So it's like I'm honoring him. I'm not just honoring my ego here. And I'm really starting to feel that because I forced myself to not hide this pain in my life, but rather integrate it into the larger story that is my life, it stopped having so much importance. It stopped being this place where I can't go or I have to pretend like it didn't matter or never quite deal with it or process it. I don't look at it as like I'm a victim or he's a victim. I look at it as, okay, clearly that had to happen to get me to where I am now. And I think that's probably a big part of what his spirit wanted me to understand. I mean, I've just had so many strangers who I've become friends with who've helped with the list, they would acknowledge weird things that happen that have like absolutely no earthly explanation to them. One thing I'm thinking of right now, for example, is last year, I checked off Ona Black Tux. And I had a guy from college just show up in my DMs. And he was like, hey, I really want to help you with a list item. I'm a photographer now, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, cool, let's see what we can do. And I was like, oh, I think I know which one it is. I think it has to be the tuxedo. And I'll feel like I'm owning it if you take a picture of me looking confident in it. So I was just like, where am I gonna get a tuxedo for a woman? I really was doing all this like online research and he was doing a little bit of it. He was kind of interested in the whole story because he had lost his dad the year before. And uh I ended up finding a tuxedo. I'm not not even kidding, in the boutique right below my apartment. Get out. Like one day I walked out to get coffee and there it was in the window. In the window. In the window. Woman's tuxedo. It fit you. Perfect fit, only size they had left. Oh! I know, right? I told him and he was like, oh, that must be that list magic you've been telling me about. (laughs) And I was like, yep, it was crazy. And I told wow. the woman who owned the boutique what I was doing and why. And she's like, oh, you can go to the tailor across the street just to like polish things up on this. And um, I'm going to give you a 25% discount just because like, you're my neighbor. And I, when the book comes out, I want you to come do a reading here. And you know, I've just experienced that from people so much where they just – Automatically embrace this because I think they sense the hopefulness and people want to be a part of that. And that's always been something that's been really interesting to me because one of the things that happened when he died was I felt like, where is everybody? Mm -hmm. You know, like I felt in a way very isolated in my grief. And I don't think that's necessarily anybody's fault. I think a lot of it just had to do with the fact that the way he died was a little bit scary because it was this tragic thing. But also, it was unrelatable for people my age, Um, so I couldn't connect with them about it. And I was in a stage of life where I really did need to be out on my own. I couldn't be back at my mom's house. So I think there were just a lot of elements that came together that made it feel kind of like, oh, okay, I have no community to mourn this person with and almost like did he even exist and then that's compounded by the fact that my experience of him was almost a secret growing up because I saw him twice a week but he had almost no involvement with my day-to-day life but I mean the reality is he was an incredibly shaping figure for me and I think having the chance to say yes to this adventure of satisfying his dreams. There's something about doing that for someone you love, and there feels almost like I'm fixing something for him, but at the same time I'm fixing something for me.
1: If you'd like to see Laura's father's complete bucket list and her progress, visit myfatherslist.com. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as three dollars a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at Patreon.com/slash Tell Me About Your Father. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.